0: Schöne Grüße von City Breaks. Hello, greetings from City Breaks, and welcome to the very first episode of a new series, one entitled City Breaks Munich. And in this first introductory episode, I would like to mention a few geographical and historical factors, which it's important to know before you visit the city, and to understand while you're there so that you know what you're looking at, and then run through some of the themes which are going to keep recurring as we talk about the various places in the city. The episode will conclude then of a rundown of the next 13 episodes, roughly what's going to be in each one. And I hope to leave you keen to go straight on to episode two, where I'll be starting the main business of any City Break series, which is working through the places that you might want to visit while you're in the city and talking about the history and the culture connected to them, introducing you to some of the people who are important to each place all with the general idea that when you go there, you get much more out of your visit because you really do understand what you're looking at. If you've already been to Munich, by the way, I hope you'll find the series a nice reminder of things that you enjoyed, perhaps a place to find out a few things that you didn't know, maybe an appetiser to start dreaming about going back one day. And just as an introductory remark, I wanted to mention the idea that Munich really is a different city from every other German city It sees itself, I think it would be fair to say, as Germany's unofficial southern capital, as really rather different. I'm pretty sure they pride themselves on being a bit different from the rest of the country. And certainly the rest of the country has been known to roll its eyes occasionally and say, oh yes, Bavarians and the people of Munich, they're rather different, you know. Something we'll definitely come back to a number of times. And as an illustration, I'd like to quote the art historian Gabriel Fawcett, who was interviewed by the Daily Telegraph in 2017 and who said the following about the city. Munich is not like other German cities. It doesn't peer north or east. It looks south over the Alps to Italy for its ambience and inspiration. It always has. I think that sums up quite nicely the idea of an area, Bavaria, and a city, Munich, where everything the language and the dialect, the food, the traditions, are rooted in that place rather than being just more generally German. Bavaria is, after all, the place where one of the main German political parties, the CDU, has its own special branch, the CSU. Not even when the party is in government do they muck in and become part of the main event. They are, differently, the CSU. So, as you'll be picking up, the main factor about Munich is perhaps the fact that it's the capital of Bavaria in the southeastern part of Germany, Bavaria being the largest of Germany's 16 lender or provinces. If you look at a map of Europe, it's very much situated in the middle. It's bordered by Austria and the Czech Republic. So, although Bavaria has always been very rooted in Western Europe, it is also some kind of gateway to the east and in the era before 1989 would have been very aware that the Czech Republic was really quite close to its borders. Another geographical factor that's very important in Munich is the fact that although it's a large cosmopolitan city, it is really very close to beautiful countryside. Bavarian Alps to the south, a number of the most beautiful Bavarian lakes really quite close. In the case of the Starnbergersee, just a half-hour train ride from the centre of the city – See, of course, is the German for lake. So Lake Starnberg is the one that's very close to the city. And then a bit further away, there are places like the Ammersee and Herrenkiemsee. And in addition to the hills and lakes so familiar to anyone who knows Bavaria, of course, forest plays a big role too. We'll be talking in a future episode about one of the Bavarian kings who liked nothing better than to ride through the Bavarian hillside and forests at night on his horse-drawn carriage. Bavaria, too, is an area famed for its historic towns, places like the medieval Schorngau or Oberammergau, where the passion play takes place. And, of course, for its fairy tale castles, places like Neuschwanstein, built, as you may know, by Ludwig II, king of Bavaria in the 19th century. It's a province where you don't have to travel very far at all from outside the city to come to villages where time seems to stand still and to the vast areas of land where agriculture is the most important industry. That's seen in the wide variety of local produce that's found its way into Munich cuisine. And of course, it's providing the raw materials for the world-famous beer industry, on which Munich also rests its reputation. As for the city itself, a population of about one and a half million. Built largely to the west of the River Isar, with its roots in medieval times a fact that you can see still today in the three remaining city gates that you can find if you look on a map or indeed wander around and visit. You'll find them dotted along the road which circles round the inner city and you need to look on the map for the words Isartor, so that gate obviously named after the river, Sendlinger Tor and Karls Tor. The original inner city centres on Marienplatz, so the large square named after Mary, on which you'll find the two town halls, and very near to which Munich's most famous pair of churches, the Peterskirche, so Saint Peter's, and the Frauenkirche, or the Church of Our Lady, together with the Viktualienmarkt, another big square, the one with lots of food stalls on it. It was originally a wholesale market; still is a market today, where you can buy all sorts of fruit, flowers, and foodstuffs. But where also you find a whole array of food stands, where you can enjoy Munich sausage or take a glass of beer. Still within the inner city, another major area is the Residenz, so that's where the Wittelsbach Palace was. The palace built by the Wittelsbach family and lived in by them for generations. Close to that is the Hofgarten, so the little court garden. And the square known as Odeonsplatz, famous because that's where the Hitler coup took place. Just outside the inner city, to the northeast you'll find the district of Schwabing, which is the intellectual area where the university still is today, and the Englischer Garten, an enormous park designed originally by an Englishman, hence the name. To the northwest is the Museum Quarter with most of the big art galleries, and more controversially, Königsplatz, so King's Square, which was the site of the Nazi headquarters in the 1930s and 40s. Southwest of the inner city is a large green area known as the Theresian Visa, literally translated as Theresa's Meadow, and best known today as the site of the Oktoberfest. And the eastern side of the city is dominated by the river. So I hope that helps you get your bearings a little bit. Let's move on to the history of the city, which was founded in the 12th century by one Duke Henry the Lion, who ruled over quite a lot of territory in northern Germany and was very keen to extend his empire in a southerly direction. Some of the earliest inhabitants of the city of Munich were monks and that's important because actually that's where the city gets its name. So the German for monk is Münch and München, the German name for the city, then is a corruption of that word and even today then serves as a reminder of the city's origins. Two things which are seen as symbols of the city are both connected to this very early history. So one is the lion. You probably know the word Leuvenboy as the name of one of Munich's best-known breweries. And the Leuven part of that word is indeed the lion, which is seen as a symbol of the city, going back, of course, to the fact that their founder was Duke Henry the Lion. And the other symbol that you'll see a lot on postcards and in souvenir shops is a strange creature called the Münchner Kindle, which really means the child of Munich. In its current form, it really evolved in the 19th century. It was first seen pictured in a magazine where the artist took a monk, as being one of the original symbols of the city, and remodelled it, made it look much more childlike. It's thought that what they were trying to do was blend the idea of the monk with the idea of the Christ child, and this mixture took people's imagination and gradually turned into the Münchner Kindle, whom you can see today, wearing an apron and a girdle that you can see has got its origins in the monk's habit. It's carrying two much more secular accoutrements. It generally has a beer stein in one hand and a radish in the other. We'll come to radishes later, but they're seen as an accompaniment for a good glass of beer. And actually, while we're talking about symbols. It's not strictly speaking a symbol of Munich, but to me, one of the things that I see out and about often, which reminds me of the city, is the BMW symbol. BMW, of course, the most successful company in Bavaria, based in Munich. And for their symbol, those pale blue and white colours that you see, they are the Bavarian national colours. And you may not know that the design is based on four aircraft blades because when BMW was first founded, it was in fact aeroplanes and not cars that they were originally making. And you will see those same pale blue and white colours on flags across the city, and on many other things where a spot of patriotism is called for, sometimes on beer tankards for example. I'm going to skip a lot of Munich's early history, because it doesn't relate too much to the places that you're probably most likely to visit, but just a couple of dates I did want to mention, both in the 16th century, so... Firstly, that was a century in which the first purity law was introduced, which is actually a law regulating the beer industry and saying that German beer, proper German beer, only could have no other ingredients than hops, barley and water. So as early as 1516, they were setting about creating the German beer industry that was going to be so popular worldwide for centuries to come. 1516, that's the date we need to remember. The purity law does still apply. It's been modified slightly. These days it's also permitted to include yeast, but it's certainly still not allowed to add any preservatives or flavourings or anything. And the other key fact about the 16th century was the Reformation. They were talking about Luther's time when in other parts of Germany people were leaving the Catholic Church and forming Protestant churches. But where in Munich things were staunchly Catholic remained so, and in fact even today both Munich and Bavaria are very Catholic areas. I did see a statistic for 1906 telling me that the population of Munich in that year was 80% Catholic. As far as the history of Munich, which is important when you're on a visit there, is concerned, it's really in the 19th century that things begin to get interesting. As early as 1806, Bavaria became a kingdom, ruled over by such major personalities as Ludwig I and Ludwig II. And it's interesting to note that in 1871, when Germany was unified, became one country, Bavaria still kept its sovereignty and many of its own traditions. Though so even at that stage, keeping a certain separateness, a certain Bavarian flavor. Munich, of course, played a major part in the 20th century history, being the city from which Adolf Hitler rose to power after the overthrow of the Bavarian monarchy in 1918, the place where he organised the putsch which failed in 1923, a city which suffered terribly through the 20s from mass unemployment, hyperinflation, currency collapse, much like the rest of Germany. But where these things took on even more significance because they made people perhaps more willing to accept that a different type of ruler was what was needed, with the end result that Hitler made it his power base before he moved to Berlin in the 1930s. And there was a stage when Munich was actually known as the Hauptstadt der Bewegung, so the capital of the movement, the movement, of course, being National Socialism. If you've only come across one thing in Munich history, it's probably the signing of the Munich Agreement, which, of course, was a precursor to the start of World War Two, because it was in Munich that Hitler and Mussolini and Neville Chamberlain met up to see what could be done about the German invasion of the Sudetenland and to decide that that would be allowed and the signing of the treaty led to the return to England of Neville Chamberlain, waving the piece of paper, claiming that he had gained peace in our time from this agreement. During World War Two, Munich was famously the place where some of the resistance groups tried their best to oppose Hitler and were brutally cut down by him, groups like the Weiser Rosa, the White Rose, student resistance group. But to no avail, Munich was badly bombed in the war, and so the 1940s and 50s, were decades of rebuilding. They began straight after the war with things like the Trümmerfrauen, the rubble women, who worked with their bare hands to move enormous quantities of rubble aside so that rebuilding could begin. The 50s were more characterised by that other very German phenomenon, the Wirtschaftswunder, the economic miracle. And then eventually, modern, wealthy Munich came out, the seat of such world-famous, successful companies like BMW and Adidas, but also still a place very much rooted in its Bavarian traditions. So that's the briefest of run-throughs of things you really need to know about the history of Munich. Many of those things we'll be coming back to in future episodes. And so I wanted to turn next to the idea of the themes that will keep recurring as we talk about Munich in all its different guises. We certainly can't ignore the theme of dark history, the arrival of Hitler in 1913, the rise of Nazism, World War II the presence of the Dachau concentration camp just outside the city. And I think it is to Munich's credit that it doesn't try to ignore them either. And there are a number of places you can visit where you can find out all about that side of the city's history. One is the Stadtmuseum, town museum, which has a completely separate permanent exhibition devoted to the rise of Hitler and World War II. There's also a documentation centre, which I'll be mentioning where, again, you can find out all about what happened. And then, of course, you can visit the memorial centre out at Dachau, where you can learn more about the Jews and other minority groups that the Nazis didn't like who were imprisoned there. So, yes, there's definitely a dark history theme to be found. But there's so much that's interesting as well about the history which came before that. Perhaps it could be summarised as the Wittelsbach dynasty, who ruled the Wittelsbach family, ruled Munich from 1180 to 1918. And included some very colourful characters who left behind buildings and monuments that you're sure going to want to visit today. Thinking of people like Maximilian Joseph, who had the wonderful Rococo theatre built as part of the residence complex, and in whose reign the first parliament and first constitution were introduced. And Ludwig I, who ruled in the first half of the 19th century, and who was very culturally aware, kept wanting to make. Munich, as he called it, the Athens on the Isar, so a city to rival Athens culturally, but built on the river Isar that flows through Munich, and who left some of the biggest art galleries that we'll be talking about in a later episode, but who quite colourfully became mired in scandal, most notably his affair with the dancer and actress Lola Montez, which in the end led to his abdication. His successor, Maximilian II, is seen as a very enlightened ruler. And you'll certainly come across him, because he it was who introduced a building programme that led to the setting up of some of the biggest, widest streets in the city, one of which is called after himself, Maximilianstrasse, which goes past the residence. Ludwig II might be the best known of the later Wittelsbach monarchs, the highly flamboyant but equally highly fragile king, who gradually retreated into a fantasy world, part of which involved overseeing the building of the fairy tale castles now dotted around Bavaria like Neuschwanstein and Herren Herrenchiemsee. So yes, royal Munich is definitely a theme. That leads nicely on to another very prevalent theme which is going to be that of art and culture. The building in the 19th century of some of the world famous art museums like the Alte Pinakothek and the Neue Pinakothek. Munich is also the city which had its very own artistic movement in the early 20th century, the Blue Rider movement. Centered around artists like Kandinsky and Paul Klee, which has its own museum in Munich today known as the Lehnbach House. On a different note, Munich is also famous as a place where you can see Baroque architecture, something imported really from southerly places like Italy. Michaelskirche, for example, is said to be the largest Renaissance church north of the Alps. And in the late 19th and early 20th century, there was the golden age of Munich, very much centred around café culture. You can see little glimpses of that still in places like the Café Luitpold. And it was a time when famous writers like Thomas Mann and Heinrich Heine gathered in the city, as did Ibsen. And also lots of well-known musicians, Wagner, Mahler and Strauss, all have Munich connections. So for all those reasons, we can definitely say that Munich is a centre of art and culture. It's also a city of contrasts. It's very German, seems very German certainly to foreigners, and yet it is the German Bundesland that sees itself as being really not quite German in the way that all the others are, set apart, a bit different. If you've visited other more northerly German cities, you'll feel the difference as soon as you arrive in Munich, a sort of southerly feel, a bit more sunshine, different types of architecture. Then there's the town and country contrast. Munich is a very wealthy city. There are said to be more millionaires per capita there than anywhere else in Germany except perhaps Hamburg. Wealth that's founded partly on companies like BMW and Adidas and bringing along with it a sophistication and a cosmopolitan feel. And yet at the same time, the city is very much of Bavaria, something you can feel immediately in its food, in its agricultural traditions, One of the main squares in Munich, for example, has a May tree every year. There's a big agricultural show linked to the Oktoberfest. And the countryside never feels very far away. There's Lake Starnberg, just a few minutes' train ride out of the city centre. The Bavarian Alps are not far away, nor is the forest. And the fairy tale castles always have a very rustic setting. Munich is the city where you can see people wearing Tracht, Bavarian costume, the full regalia, perhaps more when they're working in the tourist industry, but nevertheless, in the streets of Munich, you'll see lots of people wearing those green lauden coats and felt hats in the winter. And perhaps another contrast would be the contrast between the, the very religious and the secular. Definitely a Catholic city, a city in which there's a law which says that the Frauenkirche, the big Catholic church, has to be the tallest building in the city, such is its importance. And yet, of course, it's the city where the world's biggest beer festival takes place every year and attracts six million visitors. Yet even there, right in the middle of the Oktoberfest, you'll find that mass is held. And this mixing of the religious and the secular doesn't seem very odd after all when you consider that the medieval monks, who were some of the earliest inhabitants of the city, were the people who first came up with the idea of brewing beer. And maybe the very last theme that I'd want to mention would be that of Gemütlichkeit. Gemütlichkeit means a nice, cosy, pleasant atmosphere. It's a very German idea, generally, but it seems particularly pertinent in Munich, where all those beer halls and beer gardens play such an important role, and where the hearty cuisine is also enjoyed in all the cafes and restaurants. And I found a quotation from a book called Meyer's Encyclopedia, which was written in 1852, and which really sums up the idea that conviviality and hospitality and gemütlichkeit is an important thing in Munich, was then, still is. This is what was written, Firmly attached to his homeland and either ignorant or misinformed of what lies beyond, the Munich native enjoys dancing and music and beer most of all. So there you have it, a little bit of a summary of things important to Munich, things that make Munich different from any other city you might ever visit. So I'd just like to finish by giving a quick rundown of the episodes which are planned and what's going to be in them. Episode two will start with the Residence. I like to base most of the episodes around somewhere that you're going to visit and alongside the history of the Residence and an idea of what there is to see there, I'm going to slot in a brief history of the Wittelsbach dynasty, that family that ruled Munich for 700 plus years. For episode three, we'll be going to their summer palace, Schloss Nymphenburg, to find out what's there. And I'll also be giving a brief biography of Ludwig I and the tale of his spectacular downfall, engineered by the dancer and good time girl, Lola Montez, whose picture you can see in the Schoenheitz Gallery, so the Gallery of Beauties in the Schloss Nymphenburg. She's not there by herself, unfortunately, because Ludwig used it as a place to collect portraits of all his favourite women. For episode four, we'll go out to Starnberg, so the lake just outside the city, which was so linked to Ludwig II. Boat trips from Starnberg will take you to places where he lived, to the Roseninsel, his island retreat on the lake, and to the place where he died, a rather mysterious death, he drowned in the lake. People were never quite sure whether it was an accident or not. And today you can see there the memorial church overlooking the place where he died and the wooden cross which sits in the water at the very spot. For episode five I'm planning a tour of some of Ludwig's fairy tale castles. So there'll be information about Neuschwanstein, about Linderhof and about Herren Chiemsee and what there is to see in each of those. And then for episode six we'll come back to Munich town centre and have a look at all the main buildings there from the Marineplatz, several of the big churches and the Englischer Garten. And then the next three episodes deal with Munich in wartime. So episode seven is really about the rise of Hitler, his arrival in the city, and how he managed to build his movement up from there. That will involve visits to places like the Hofbräuhaus, where his putsch started in 1923, and to Odeonsplatz, where the actual putsch took place. And then in episode 8, when I'm going to focus on World War II itself, we can talk about the Stadtmuseum with its very detailed and informative exhibition all about the Nazis. Brief mention of one or two other places, like Königsplatz, where the documentation centre is, on the site where Hitler originally had his headquarters. And a section on the fate of the Jews in Munich during World War II, based around the Dachau Memorial Centre and the New Jewish Synagogue. In episode 9, the last of the three episodes on the war, I'm going to focus on the people of Munich who tried very bravely to stand up to Hitler to oppose his ideas. That will include priests like Alfred Delp and Hubert Mayer and the journalist Fritz Gerlich and especially Hans and Sophie Scholl who formed the White Rose Resistance Group. All of these people were Munich-based and I'll be talking about the places in the city today where you can learn more about them. For episode 10, I'm going to focus on art with a brief history of the artistic movements which have some influence on Munich, going from medieval times through Dürer, the Renaissance, the Baroque period, Romanticism, and the 20th century Jugendstil and Expressionism. We'll have a look at each of the big art museums, talk about one or two highlights to be found in each one, and a section on a fascinating book called the Munich Art Horde, which tells the story of what happened to many paintings which were rejected by the Nazis, bought by art dealers, and ended up in a hoard found in a Munich flat only a few years ago. Episode 11, going to think about music and theatre and literature in the city, talk about Munich's golden age at the end of the 19th century and the very early 20th, and some of the places you can still visit today which are a reminder of that, and make mention of some of the famous Musicians, think Wagner, Mahler, Strauss and authors, Thomas Mann, Heinrich Heiner, who came to Munich, did some of their best work there. Episode 12 then, I'm going to call Munich Sporting History because I'd like to talk a little bit about the two big football clubs and the amazing Allianz Arena, the stadium which they share. And then move on to talk about the Munich air crash and the memorials of it, which you can see in the city today and the 1972 Olympics. Munich's Olympia Park, of course, is still there and is one of its major tourist attractions. And then to round off the series, I think we need two episodes on food and drink. So in episode 13, I'm going to talk about Bavarian cuisine, Bavarian food traditions, anything from Kaffee und Kuchen to Weiswurst to the specialities you can find in Munich's restaurants. I'm going to mention, too, some of the food markets and delicatessens and what you can buy in them. And then to round the whole thing off, episode 14... We'll end with Munich and its beer. So we'll have a history of some of the big breweries, mention of the beer halls, the beer gardens, an idea of some of the things you can eat and drink there, and a mention of Munich's famous Museum of Beer and the Oktoberfest. And that will be it. It does seem a fitting place to end with the notion of Gemütlichkeit. What could be more Munich in flavour? So, I hope you're looking forward to the series. I hope you'll join me to listen to the various episodes. And for the moment, I plan to just sign out by thanking you very much for listening. In German, that will be something like, vielen Dank, and wishing you goodbye in German. Can't really say, Auf Wiedersehen, because that means until we see each other again. But I can say the word which means, until we hear each other again, which is, Auf Wiederhören. So, Auf Wiederhören.